Take your Bible, if you would. Let's open up to Galatians chapter 3. We continue to move verse by verse through Galatians. We're in verse 15. Is the law contrary to the promises of God? That's the question. As we normally do, I've asked you to kneel. Now I'm going to ask you to stand for the reading of God's Word. If you're physically able to stand, join us. Galatians 3, we're going to begin in verse 15. Galatians 3, 15. Brethren, I speak in terms of human relations, Galatians 3.15. Even though it is only a man's covenant, yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. Now the promises, Galatians 3.16, were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed, that is Christ. What I'm saying is this, the law which came 430 years later does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. For if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on a promise, but God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. Why the law then? It was added because of transgressions having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. Now a mediator is not for one party only, whereas God is only one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. For if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on law. But the scripture has shut up everyone under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. You may be seated. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your living word. I realize that if someone's new to the Bible, this is some, a little bit technical, <clears throat> but it is important that we understand the difference between this promise made to Abraham in Genesis 15 and the law given to Moses. What is the purpose of the law? How does that merge with this idea of the promise? Do the two, are the two contrary, opposed to one another? Are they complementary? How are we to view these things? How do we see the law once we become a Christian? What role does the law have in our lives? These are questions that we have. And these are questions that are answered in this section. I pray that you give us clarity, application, understanding, and I pray that we'll be more equipped to articulate this uh, good news of the gospel, Lord, so that others can hear that there's hope that's not based on our performance, but based on your goodness. We love you, Lord, and we ask that you would bless our time together, lead it where you want it to go. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen. amen. Now, last time we were together, we ended with this incredible uh, couple of verses in Galatians 3. 13 and 14, it says, Christ, take a look with me, Galatians 3, 13, redeemed us, the church, from the curse of the law. Having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. This happened, notice, in order that in Christ Jesus, and if you're a Christian, you're in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham. So notice the curse of the law contrasted with the blessing of Abraham, might come to the Gentiles 
so that we might receive the promise. The promise is a good contrast with the law of the Spirit through faith. We have a promise that we've been rescued from the curse of the law. You have a contrast with curse and blessing, a contrast with promise and law. How do we make a distinction between these things? How do we understand uh, the law and the promise? And what role, if any, does the law still have for believers? For example, you may have heard somebody say, Christians are no longer under the law. That's true. We're not under the law to be saved, but the law hasn't gone away either. Remember, the law has aspects to it. You may have heard this before, but you might want to write this down. The law had a civil aspect for Israel. 613 laws, commandments and subcommandments, had to do with a theocracy that was over Israel. So there was a civil aspect. There was a ceremonial aspect of the law where there was a sacrificial system in place so that if you sinned against God or there, you were in need of cleansing, you could come with a sacrifice. And then there's a moral component of the law. And the moral component of the law has not gone away. Thou shall not murder, God still thinks is a pretty good idea. And so do you and I, especially if someone's pointing a gun at us. Now we live in a world where people think that things are now subjective and relative. And laws, maybe they don't really matter. Maybe they're just a matter of a societal, you know, push of ideas. But laws, the laws that we talk about in the Ten Commandments, come from the heart of God. And they're important to God. And the Reformers believe that the law, that is the moral law, still has a role in sanctification. And it has a role in gospel proclamation. Because if someone hears the law and realizes how deep the law goes and how it's not just about my outward activity but about my heart, my motive, my thoughts, what I fail to do, then the law helps us to preach the gospel because it shows that we all have a need for a Savior. Now once we become Christians, we have the empowerment of the Holy Spirit to keep the law that is the moral aspects of the law, by the power of the Holy Spirit. You can see that in Romans chapter 8. But the law, the moral dictates of the law, us keeping them cannot save us because we don't keep the law. We've all lied. We've all lusted. We've all coveted. We've all come short of the top ten We've all failed to love God with everything we are and love our neighbor as ourselves. And if you try to get saved by keeping the law, you're under a curse. That was last week. You can never measure up. So you're going to put yourself under condemnation. But if you trust the promise that someone else paid the sin debt for you, namely Christ, then you get the blessing. Amen? And what we've been uh, getting at is you get his righteousness, you get forgiven, you get the righteousness of Christ credited to your account by faith. You're right in the eyes of God. Now, God may use the moral law to sanctify you, but you're justified that is made right before God simply by trusting in the finished work of Christ on the cross. 
This is the promise of the Spirit. And the moment that you receive the Lord into your life, you receive that promise of the Holy Spirit, guaranteeing that you're a believer and that you're right before God. 2 Peter 1, 3, and 4 says, Seeing that His, God's divine power, has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. For by these He has granted to us precious and magnificent promises, in order that by them you might become partakers of the divine nature, you could say the Holy Spirit, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. We have promises from God. They're magnificent. They're precious. And I've stood, you know, many times with many of you in cemeteries. And we've looked to God for His magnificent and precious promises. Amen? And we've said, you know what, Lord, we've staked everything that we are, not only now, but the future on these promises. And these promises are yes and amen. They're magnificent. They're beautiful. And they're not based upon how well I performed in a given week. <laughs> Thank the Lord. Right? They're not based upon, you know, my thought life being perfect during the week. They're not based upon whether or not I did the right thing in a given moment or failed to do the right thing, as much as I desire to, as much as I want my life to be conformed into the image of Jesus, I'm not banking my future on the performance of Michael Lance. I'm banking my future on a finished work by a perfect, risen Savior, amen, who died, who became a curse for me. So a promise is something precious. In Greek, the idea of a promise is a self-committal. It's a promise to do something. It's a promise that you will keep your word. It is a pledge, especially a divine assurance of good. God will keep his promises. Now, we live in a world where, if you're like me, you know, I grew up in a situation where not everybody kept their promises, amen? Many of us come from broken families, broken covenants, broken this, broken that. We watch politicians say, read my lips, there'll be no new taxes. This is a while back. <laughs> and then there's taxes. Or we have, you know, some of us have made self proclamations at the beginning of every new year okay that's it i'm gonna do this from now on going to the gym every day no more chocolate cake <laughs> whatever it might be but you know how quickly we can not follow through on our own words on our own you know declarations that we make i'm gonna now do this and i'm gonna do it better and i'm gonna do it well and then we run into our flesh and the world and the enemy. What a marvelous thing a promise is. When a person makes a promise, says one writer, she reaches out into an unpredictable future and makes one thing predictable. She will be there even when being there costs her more than she wants to pay. When a person makes a promise, he stretches himself out into circumstances that no one can control and controls at least that one thing. 
He will be there no matter what the circumstances turn out to be. With one simple word of promise, a person creates an island of certainty in a sea of uncertainty. When a person makes a promise, she stakes a claim on her personal freedom and power. When you make a promise, you take a hand in creating your own future, close quote. With all the uncertainty in the world, if you're a man or a woman of your word, you can create certainty. But of course you want to back that up. And in the gospel, we have a God who is always true to his word. And he says, if you believe in my son, I will bring you safely home into my heavenly kingdom. And that's such good news because we live in a world where there's so many isms and religions that teach that you get saved based upon performance and you can't know until that final day whether you've done enough good things. What kind of peace can that bring to your life? If you're really honest with yourself, do you think you're going to be able to earn it when the standard is perfection? You're not going to make it. And this is why Jesus came. He came to give us a promise. And there's many people inside and outside the church confused by false teaching. They get told about the, the gospel of grace and then they're told, but now you got to do this, this, and this or you're not saved. We live in a world of a lot of empty promises. But God gave promises to his people, even called the land that they would inherit the promised land. And God is, unlike us, always true to his promises. Writer and speaker Lewis Smead says, Yes, somewhere people still make and keep promises. They choose not to quit when the going gets rough because they promise once to see it through. They stick to lost causes. They hold on to love grown cold. They stay with people who have become pains in the neck. They still dare to make promises and care enough to keep the promises they make. I want to say to you that if you have a ship that you will not desert, if you have people you will not forsake, if you have causes you will not abandon, then you are like God. In fact, God said he will never leave us, nor will he ever forsake us. That's a magnificent promise. Are there any, is there any small print in that promise? <laughs> any, anything that I need to know about? No, I will never leave you. And I will never forsake you. If you want to have confidence in a relationship, you can say I love you, and you should say I love you all the time. But you should also say to your spouse, I will never leave you. And I will never forsake you. I've made a commitment to you, I've made a covenant to you, and I'm not going anywhere. Now there's times that I'll need to take a walk for a couple of hours. <laughs> Can I get a witness? There's times that you may not like me and I may not like you. My bride's in the front row, so. Goes both ways. She said, she said an amen up there. <laughs> But here's the beauty of a covenant. We may not always see eye to eye. We may not always be synced up. But I'm not going anywhere. This is the gospel. And brethren, I speak in terms of human relations. Even though it's only a man's covenant. Look, we all realize that we see this in everyday life. 
Yet when it, a human covenant, if you will, is ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. NIV, brothers, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set, a, set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. Now, when we're studying theology, it's always good if a pastor can give us a human example. Amen? Because we hear stuff about justification and sanctification and promises and covenants, and, and we're like, okay, how does this work in everyday life? Well, in everyday life, in human relationships and you know documents and contracts we we realize there's real estate contracts there's uh you know different things that we sign documents you you buy a house and you sign about two thousand pieces of paper how many of you by the time you get to the 17th one you don't even know where you're signing anymore like just get this over with oh there, here's another stack that you have to sign right you buy a car by the time you've negotiated a car, you usually want to kill somebody and break a couple of commandments anyway, <laughs> right? And then you sign all these documents. But some believe that this language is that of a last will and testament. And it may well be. And in a last will and testament, you would put down, I, I bequeath this to this person, I want to leave this to this person. And once that's been ratified and you could say notarized, then no one can come along later if you decided to leave certain things to certain individuals and change your wishes. They can't add to it or modify it. Now, you could do it before you die, but nobody else can come along and break that legal contract. They can't come in and change what your desire was to give away. This is the same thing when it comes to the gospel. From the lesser to the greater, if human beings can have covenants or contracts that are unbreakable, how much more God? And the word here for uh, a covenant is a general term for a binding agreement. If something gets drawn up, last will and testament, etc., no one's going to come in and mess with it. And here's the application. And this is kind of the overall theme of Galatians. Don't you come in, says Paul to the false teachers, and tell people in the Galatian church that they're not saved by grace after they received the Holy Spirit, they got the down payment of the pledge of the Holy Spirit, and then you're going to come in there and tell them, oh, you're not really saved. you got to do now do this, this, and this, and this. Do you see what you're doing? You're messing with a contract that God instituted. And you can't do that. In fact, in chapter 1, Paul says if you do that, God's going to put you under the curse. Don't mess with the gospel. And that is obviously a sobering idea, but it is true. Now, it's, it relates because some were saying, yeah, but there's the law. There's the 613 commandments and subcommandments. We can't just set that aside. We can't just say we don't have to worry about that anymore. So what role does that have? Look at verse 16. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham. You can write down again in your margin, Genesis 12 and 15. And to his seed. He does not say and to seeds. Now the word seed can be taken as a plural, right? If you say I'm going to plant seed, 
you don't necessarily mean one seed. So the word could be a singular or a plural. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul is going to explain to us that the idea of the seed, way back in Genesis, which kind of marries together with the idea of offspring, that is children or descendants, was actually pointing to one seed, and the grammar does allow for that. He does not say to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one and to your seed that is Christ. The covenant with Abraham was characterized by promises signifying what God would bring to pass. And when God made the covenant to Abraham, the animal pieces were cut. Abraham was asleep and God passed through the animal parts. It was an unconditional covenant based upon God's faithfulness alone. Abraham believed in the Lord and that belief was what? Credited to him as righteousness. That's the covenant that came at the beginning of the Jewish nation. And the law came 430 years later. Now, people have done all these calculations. 430 years from what point? Some say from the last time God re-articulated the covenant. Because he spoke it to Abraham, he spoke it to Isaac, and he spoke it to Jacob. You could say the patriarchs of the nation. So many scholars say you can calculate the 430 from the last spoken promise of God because he had to reiterate the promise on multiple occasions just like we have to reiterate promises on multiple occasions. Amen? Because sometimes we wonder. And those who were following God still wondered, Lord, are you going to still do this? Are you going to do that? Remember when Jacob's between the rock and the hard place and brother Esau's got troops and Jacob's like, Lord, are you going to come through? What's going to happen? And he wrestled with some strange visitor all night and he wouldn't let go. I'm not letting go until you bless me. And the visitor finally grabbed him by the thigh. <laughs> Yay! And Jacob never walked the same again, but his name was renamed Israel. And Israel probably is best defined as governed by God or God prevails. And here's the idea. God's promises will prevail. But Esau's coming! What's going to happen now? And we all have our moments, right? But this is happening, Lord. This is happening. Now what? I'm between a rock and a hard place. And God often says, good. Because now you got to trust me. And sometimes we wrestle. Right? Sometimes all night long. And God said, you want to know that if I'm true to my promises? Remember in the ancient world, one of the things that they would do is they would grab the thigh as a way to confirm a promise on future generations. <laughs> and it was God's way of saying, I'm going to be good to my promises. Your seed will be realized, which will ultimately lead to Christ, who comes through the line of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, etc. Would you turn to Genesis 22? First book of your Bible, Genesis 22. So, Abraham got the promises in Genesis 15. He didn't have any kids back then. And then the son of promise comes. His name is Isaac. You want Genesis 22. 
His name means laughter. And he's arrived, and he's probably a late teenager. And Abraham is told to go and offer him as a burnt offering to the Lord. And all God's people said, you got to be kidding. <laughs> you mean I waited this long? We waited this long? And now you want me to do what? But the Bible doesn't record any of that. The Bible just says Abraham was obedient. He goes up with Isaac, the son of promise. He, there's the wood and the fire and the knife. Where's, where's the lamb? And the gospel's on display. Check this out. Abraham called after God stopped him. Abraham called the name 2214 of Genesis. Of that place, the Lord will provide. That's relevant to the gospel. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord, it will be provided. Genesis 22, look at verse 15. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, indeed I will greatly bless you. I will greatly multiply, here's that word, your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is in the seashore. And your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. And in your seed, 18, what's going to happen? All the nations, a reiteration of Genesis 12, 3. All the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. The gospel in Genesis 22 is on display. Abraham goes up to Mount Moriah. By the way, Mount Moriah is the place that 2,000 years later, Jesus would die on the cross as God's one and only son. Abraham was acting out the gospel. And the mention of this seed is extremely relevant to this section. Because the seed, the ultimate expression of the seed, is Christ. All throughout the Bible, Bible students, we have this idea of the singular seed. This is one I think of. It's, I will put enmity, Genesis 3.15, between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. It says, he shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. The pre-evangel, all the way back in the fall chapter of Genesis 3.15, promises this seed. And throughout history, the enemies tried to destroy the seed. You can think of all these moments in Israel's history with all these nations going after Israel to destroy the Jewish nation. You can think of Haman and you can think of Herod and you can think of Hitler and you have to ask questions like why have the Jewish people been treated this way? Because the seed, the Savior, was coming through the nation. And the enemy started his uh, target sites way back in the beginning to try to destroy this seed. One writer says, if you go back to Galatians 3, the one and only heir of every promise of God is Christ. Every promise given in the covenant with Abraham was fulfilled in Jesus Christ and only in Jesus Christ. Therefore, the only way a person can participate in the promised blessings to Abraham is to be a fellow heir with Christ through faith in him. Faith links us to the seed. It links us to Christ and to the promises. 
In Christ, says one writer, the people of God are summed up. So the offspring here refers to Christ representatively or corporately. He's the head. So that this reference is also to the family of God in Christ. This is the 2 Corinthians 1, 20 through 22. For as many as may be the promises of God in him, they are yes. Wherefore also by him is our amen to the glory of God through us. Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us is God, who also sealed us and gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge. Once you are linked to Christ, you are linked to the promises. Amen? Once you believe in Christ, you have the righteousness of Christ. Once you are in Him, you are in the promise, and the Holy Spirit pledges or seals that promise unto the day of redemption. Amen? You are secure. God will be true to the promises that He's made to you and to me. Praise God. I don't have to be on a roller coaster. I don't have to wonder one day if God loves me and the next if he doesn't. I don't have to wonder if I, am I really going to make it to heaven? Am I really going to be there on that day? No. It's based upon the finished work of Jesus Christ. Don't look anywhere else for that blessing because you won't find it anywhere else. And certainly don't look to your performance. <laughs> You'll be a discouraged person. What I'm saying is this, Galatians 3.17, the law which came 430 years later, Galatians 3.17, does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. The law came 400 plus years later, and even though the law was given, and the people of Israel, how did they do with the law? When Moses is getting the Ten Commandments, they're passing around the golden calf. Hello? It didn't start off well, and it didn't go well from there. Amen? How many times did the people of Israel get in trouble with idolatry? To the degree that finally the northern kingdom gets taken by Assyria, and the southern kingdom goes into Babylonian captivity for 70 years. Why? Because of idolatry. Laws can be good, and we usually institute laws because people present problems. Amen? <laughs> we have laws in our land. It says on the freeway you can only go 65 miles per hour. That? <laughs> I know some of you are questioning that. That is called the speed limit. <laughs> no, that's where most of you begin. <laughs> right? And I said, you, because I always keep, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Have you ever noticed somebody always wants to keep the speed limit when you're late? Anybody else out there? Right? And then when you're trying to slow down and do things the right way, somebody else who goes to this church is on your back, flashing their brights at you. What are you doing? <laughs> Lawbreakers. Oh, we have a lot of laws in the U.S. on the books. But do you know right now, with, if you took parolees and people in prison, we have 7 million people in prison or connected some way to being under that, uh, those penalties. Why? Because we don't keep the law. 
Now, the law is good, and the law can keep some things from going haywire, and so we know we need laws, but laws are limited because laws can't change your heart. Amen? Laws can, can quell some wrongdoing, the threat of an officer pulling you over, or jail time, or even worse, can quell some of it, but laws can't change our behavior from the inside. They can't transform us. We need something else to happen. And the law came later, and I just put this in my notes. Imagine for a moment if your salvation depended on human obedience. Just imagine that. You'll make it if you keep the Ten Commandments and everything the Ten Commandments means. How many of us are in deep trouble? See, we're not going to make it. John Bunyan said, Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. For better news the gospel brings, it bids us fly and gives us wings. Amen? See, once the living Lord is living inside of me, He's doing the changing. And now I deeply desire His law in my inward man. See, I want to please Him. I want to honor Him because He's given me new desires and new passions. If the inheritance 18 is based on law, it's no longer based on a promise. You could just write down, it's either one or the other. But God has granted this is the idea of to give graciously. It's the root idea of the word grace. God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. When Abraham first believed the Lord in Genesis 15, no performance, it was wholly on God alone. If the promise is not fully dependent upon God, then it's not a promise to which one can be assured. And that's why so many people lack assurance of salvation. How many of you remember the little navigator's books back in the day? And there was a little train diagram. And, and it basically said this. If you're a new believer, you have to base your faith upon fact. Fact needs to drive the train, not feelings. Because if your feelings drive the train, the, your feelings have to be the caboose. If your feelings drive the train, you're never going to have assurance of salvation because you're always going to think that your salvation depends on your performance. And when you have a good day, you'll think, I'm good with God. And you have a bad day, then you'll think, uh-oh, I'm in trouble. I'm saved, I'm not saved. Saved. He loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not. But that's not God. Now some of you are tracking with this, and here's the question. Then why the law? If it's all based upon a promise and the law essentially puts you under a curse if you try to earn salvation through the law, then why did God give the law anyway? This may shock you, but look at verse 19. It, the law, was added because of transgressions, having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator. Note this in your Bible. Until what? The seed should come to whom the promise had been made. Remember, the seed there is Christ. It was added, and here's how you could render this language, by God, a divine passive. This is from one commentator. He says, for the sake of transgressions, which means that God gave the law to increase transgression, close quote. 
God gave the law so that sin could be seen for what sin actually is. What? Paul said in Romans 7, 7, I would have not known what coveting was unless the law said don't covet. <laughs> you ever realize, you know, in a single moment watching like uh, lifestyles of the rich and famous, how many laws you break? <laughs> oh, I'm not coveting that home or am I? <laughs> I, I, I wouldn't want that red sports car. Well, maybe for one afternoon. That's not coveting. Isn't that like partial coveting? I just want a taste of that. I just want to see what would happen if I had all that money and won the lottery. If those people with the balloons showed up to my door. Anybody out there? <laughs> but I'm good. <laughs> Romans 5.20 says, the law came in that the transgression might increase. But where sin increased, grace, what? Abounded all the more. God added the law so people could see how sinful they actually are. That's why it was added. And that's why sometimes when you are sharing the gospel, you have to remember something Ray Comfort said. You give law to the proud and grace to the humble. All right? You're sharing the gospel and somebody says, oh, I don't need that. Good for you. You know, you were messed up. You needed that Christian stuff, but I, I don't need that. One time I was outside a, a racquetball court and I was witnessing to a, a gentleman and he was a good man and he had a very important position in law. And uh, I asked him if he had a relationship with Jesus. And he said, I don't think I, I need that. He said, I have been faithful to my wife. I don't abuse drugs or alcohol. I pay my bills. I'm, I have a white picket fence, 2.5 kids and a dog named Spot. You know, all that stuff. And plus, he said, I work in the legal realm and I watch all these people. They come into my, he oversaw a jail, a prison. And they come in and they say they're converted and they have a Bible and then they're, they get out and then they're right back in my prison and I, I'm not sure I buy it, I'm not sure I believe it, I'm not sure I need it. And I said, let me ask you a question. Do you think you've kept the Ten Commandments? Ah, I think I've been a pretty good guy. Well, let's go through a couple of them. I said, have you ever told a lie? You ever lusted for someone that's not your spouse? You ever coveted stuff that didn't belong to you? You ever hated someone in your heart? Start going through them. All of a sudden, the light went from the prison house to his life. And he, he said these words to me. He said, you know what? I was so busy looking at everybody that I thought was a phony and whatever. He said, I, I use that as an excuse not to look at my own life. He realized he had broken God's law. And he was very familiar with law and what comes with that. He didn't become a Christian at that moment, but I know he was thinking about his position before God. See, no longer did he hang his hat on his own self-righteousness because a lot of people say, well, I'm not as bad as that person, so I'm good, right? No. Well, I'm not as bad as my neighbor who claims that they go to that church. <laughs> and you may be right, but you're still not good enough to inherit eternal life. One writer says, 
For those of us addicted to seeking life in the law, this passage provides sweet medicine. Laws can curb sin, but can't cure hearts. If we want to see something powerful happen in this nation, we got to pray for a heart change. Amen? we got to pray that the Spirit of the living God is doing the work. Now this law, uh, and we'll have to move quickly here, its inferiority to the promise is shown by how it was given. If you look at Galatians 3, it was given, notice, through angels by the agency of a mediator. Here, the mediator is Moses. He was the go-between between God and the people. And angels were present when the law was given. Here's a couple passages for those of you who are interested in how this happened. Deuteronomy 33, verse uh, 1 and 2 says, Now this is the blessing with which Moses, the man of God, blessed the sons of Israel before his death. He said, The Lord came from Sinai and dawned on them from Seir. He shone forth from Mount Paran, he came from the midst of 10,000 holy ones. At his right hand, there was flashing lightning for them. Psalm 68, 17 says, The chariots of God are myriads, thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them at Sinai in holiness. Myriads of chariots probably speaks of the heavenly hosts here. And so here's what it seems to say. And this is based on other uh, uh, Jewish writings outside the Bible. When God gave the law, there are all these angels there. When Moses was up on the mountain, and it's kind of like the angels handed off the law, and this is just the way it's pictured. And then Moses took the law as a mediator and brought it down to the people. But when the promise was made to Abraham, by contrast, it was God directly dealing with Abraham and walking through the animal parts. Think of the contrast. In Genesis 15, you have God doing this covenant thing with Abraham. In uh, Exodus, when he gives the law, it's smoke and fire and power and threats. Don't let anybody cross through the boundaries or they're dead. It's the law. And in Hebrews 12, the writer of Hebrews says, you can either face the God of Sinai on Judgment Day or the God of grace. Which would you choose? I know which one I'm choosing. I don't want to go to Sinai, baby. I want to go to the foot of the cross, the empty tomb, the, the promised Messiah. Now, a mediator is not for one party only, whereas God is only one. Now we have an incredible mediator, the seed, Jesus. There's one God and one mediator between God and man, that is the man, Christ Jesus, 1 Timothy 2.5. Now the go-between is the one who paid the price. He's the ultimate mediator. And so we conclude... Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. For if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have ba been based on law. If God could have given a law, because the law does reflect his heart, which could save people, then righteousness would have come by law. But God knows we don't keep the law. So it has to come based upon a promise. Why the law then? Well, the law is complementary to the gospel in the sense that it shows our need. The law has a different function. This is a key word for those of you who are working through this theologically. The law has a different function than the promise. 
But they're not contradictory or contrary. They're complementary. The law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ. Paul says, man, once I realized, Romans 7, how deep the law was, that which I thought would bring me life actually killed me. You ever come to that realization before? Nobody's getting in by being good enough. And then pause for a second and step back and ask yourself, how many people are banking on getting into heaven by being good enough? We've got to tell them the truth, folks. Because Hollywood theology and the popular movements of the day are based on performance and karma and good works outweighing your bad works. And there's so many people that are going to be so shocked on the day of judgment when they meet this holy God who the Bible says is a consuming fire. And Paul says to submit to circumcision, Gentiles, and the food laws is to turn back the clock on salvation history and not realize that the law has been fulfilled and that Christ is the end of, right, the, end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. But the scripture, if we study our Bibles, here's what we're going to find, 22, final verse. The scripture has shut up all men under sin that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who do what? Who believe. The scripture has declared the whole world to be prisoners in subjection to sin. The whole of the Bible makes this argument. The scripture as a whole, all people are prisoners to their sin and its consequences. The idea of being imprisoned here is plain, right? Shut behind iron doors, but here the Greek word actually means fish crammed in a net. You ever realize that before? And your sin can take you so far that you end up crammed in a net. And the Hebrew word for sin is quite interesting. It's kata, C-H-A-T-A. And it, here's the word picture. It means that when someone sins and keeps sinning, they build their own prison brick by brick. And the Hebrew word kata means every time you sin, you put another brick, another brick in the wall, another brick in the wall, until your sin becomes your own prison. Wow. Have you ever, do you know somebody there? You've watched them do this for years and they're in their own self-created prison. Maybe that's you. And you say, well, how do you get out? Who could open the prison doors and make me free? If the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed. If He opens the door, if you say, oh, Lord God, I've sinned against you. My sin has crammed me into the net. I feel imprisoned by it, but I want to be free. Oh, Jesus, thank you for dying on that cross for me. Thank you for your awesome promises. Save me, Lord. Open the prison door. Brethren, and I know so many of you have done this, you will be free. Free. Not to think you're saved by human performance, but by the blood of Christ. So what's the point? The promises that God has made to you are true. I'm going to ask the worship team to come on out, and I'm going to ask you to just be really thinking about things that were shared and whether or not you know the Lord. If you run to him for your salvation, do you know that you know that you know if you stood before God tonight, 
you, you would say, Lord, the only reason that I should be led into your kingdom is because I trusted in your perfect son. Thank you for sending him. See, this is salvation. Some of the most moving songs of praise are often birthed from times of despair. Such was the case with the song, Shout to the Lord. While going through a difficult time and, a, and in desperate need of the peace of God, Darlene Check sat down at her old piano, the same one she had since she was five years old. She turned to Psalm 96. Without setting out to do so, she penned one of the church's most well-known praise songs in about 20 minutes. Though she had been writing songs since her teens, Darlene never considered herself a songwriter. It was with trepidation that she shared the song with her church. But the response was immediate, and the song quickly traveled around the globe, giving believers new words to express their hearts to God. Darlene was so fearful to play the song for her pastor, she finally asked the leadership of the church to turn around so she could try to play it, because she had to start and stop and start and stop multiple times. Finally, she said, don't look at me! And she played it, and she didn't think anybody was going to like it. And everybody was blown away in the words, My Jesus, my Savior, Lord, there is none like you. All of my days I want to praise the wonders of your mighty love. My comfort and my shelter, tower of refuge and strength, let every breath and all that I am never cease to worship you. Shout to the Lord, all the earth, let us sing. Power and majesty, praise to the King. Mountains bow down and seas will roar at the sound of your name. I sing for joy at the work of your hands. Forever I'll love you, forever I'll stand. Nothing compares to the promise I have in you. Father, we are grateful for this everlasting gospel. And I pray over your people that you would help us to become more free today. More free to serve you. More free not to sin. More free to proclaim and live this everlasting gospel. More free to have consistent hope. More free to break the chains of old sin patterns. More free to have assurance and to be those who keep our promises more free to be like you. And if you're not a Christian today, you might just want to pray right now. And It's not a might. Pray right now. Jesus, save me. Set me free. Make me your own. Please pray it if it's you. If you don't know, if you know him, Jesus, save me. Thank you for this glorious gospel. Thank you for doing for me what I could not do. Thank you for living your perfect life, for dying and taking that curse from me, for rising and defeating my mortal enemy, death. Make me your child. Set me free in every sense of that word. In Jesus' name.